Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. My name is Jeff and I'm joined as always by my good buddies, Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. Richard and Michael, they debate, deliberate the most ubiquitous aspects of a diverse array of topics. And this week's topic is Richard's. It's the Mount Rushmore of going out on top. Why, sir? Well, there was a specific... Uh person or persons that I was thinking of okay. about how, wow, they really went out like, like at the top of their game. Yeah. I and think it's it got so me, rare. Yeah. And it got me thinking about how, how mm-hmm. rare it is mm-hmm. and the few people have been able to pull it off successfully. So I thought it'd be a good topic for us. Oh yeah. Well, right on. So uh, Michael, do you have a point of view about this or we'll just hear it during the, the chat? Well, I think that this is uh, such an incredibly nuanced topic because I think that going out on top um, can mean so many different things, whether it's someone uh, making a choice, whether someone dying, whether someone um, uh, uh, went out not by their own, whatever going out means, whether it's an ending of a career, whether it's an ending of a life, whether it is a, uh, whatever it is, I think it's, it's, uh, pretty fascinating as just a, it's so broad that um, I'm excited to talk about it. That is an interesting aspect is because I, through the lens of this uh, topic, I think of career, uh, maybe because our lives are somewhat kind of insular and it's hard to do apples to oranges of what, what a life mm-hmm. successful life is. But yeah, uh, it's it's funny because uh, death is the the big finality that uh, kind of equalizes us all, but uh, to evaluate um, whether somebody uh, um, well and it doesn't even out doesn't even mean they have to die. But um, no, yeah, yeah. Well, I think okay. I think that's the thing too is that would be such uh, the rarest of cases of when you are you have literally peaked and then um, your life has been taken from you. And imagine that um, if, and I don't have a choice like this, but imagine if that you were 87 years old and peaked and then you died. And then it's just like, oh my goodness, like everything just kind of uh, climaxes all at once. You know? Yeah, yeah. Your life, your career, your mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into the topic. So uh, Richard shows it, Michael starts. What's your first choice? Well, my first choice really um, led me on from last week. And uh, pardon me if I'm kind of double down a little bit, but. I'm going to talk about still Bill Watterson. Okay. Where this is a guy, you know, last week we uh, talked about the funny pages. And I think the thing that I didn't really realize was how young he was when he quit Mm -hmm. uh, drawing and writing and creating Calvin and Hobbes. He was 38 years old and he just is like, I'm retired. I've been doing this for 10 years, which is nothing. I've been at my horrible job for uh, will be 16 years and that seems like oh my god I can't believe that but you know he basically from 1985 to 1995 um, you know Calvin and Hobbes was such a huge hit from the get-go it started out in 300 papers and then by the the end of it he was in 2400 papers he was like in all, every paper that could be it seems like Calvin and Hobbes ran there because that was just what you needed to have. You needed to have the most popular, you know, comic strip of the age. And, um, you know, his decision um, to to end it all, to end doing the comic, he, he didn't kill himself. Oh my God. Uh, his, decision to, <laughs> his decision to end it all was like, I've done everything that I 
really need to do with these comics. I don't, I don't have the creative real impulse to continue on. I read some interviews with him later where he talked about the feeling of not wanting to be like the hanger on of someone that continued five, 10, 20 years on and be that people person that you kind of regret had continued something. It seems weird to think of, um, but I guess that's what a, a peak is in someone's um, artistic life or their life is in sports or their life in whatever, is that choosing the right time to, to end is so important for your legacy. And reading the interviews with him, he doesn't seem like a, a very braggadocious type person. He doesn't seem like someone that is ended it because he wanted to preserve a legacy. He just ended it because artistically he was just done. And it's interesting because he hasn't gone on to do a whole lot of things artistically. Otherwise he kind of retired and started doing landscape painting or he'd do the occasional uh, piece of artwork for like a charity or um, in 2014, he did some um, kind of fun because it was fun to do kind of fill in work for this comic called Pearls and Swine, Pearls Before Swine, where he kind of just did a couple of panels for this guy as a favor because it was fun to do. And that's like, that's been it. And like, what a life to just have, put a pinpoint on it and say, this is what I can be known for and will be known for the rest of my life. And I, I don't have the need to do this anymore. It's just, it's wild. And 38, 38. <laughs> Yeah, there's something about the comics that, that seems to drive the creators of these wildly successful strips, some of them at least, to an early retirement. Bill Waterston, uh, Gary Larson, uh, Berkeley Brethed from uh, Bloom County retired. Now he's back doing stuff online. But there seems to be something about, there. maybe it was the uh, cartoonists of that generation, and I don't know the politics of syndicated comic strips and how much pressure there is to put stuff out but something was going on there these the, the kind of star artists of the 80s all kind of decided to leave cartooning at the right around the same time unlike larson like, and i don't ahead. know how much berkeley breath had uh, merged out his uh strip but uh i could see how there's a symbiotic relationship if you have successful merch uh you licensing um contracts with uh big companies you got to keep that strip going to kind of counter that to kind of keep feel i mean all the penis has gone on forever after the strip ended but i would think like a sitcom uh you aren't making creative decisions you're extending another season because of financial decisions, because the sponsors and the network want you to. So yeah, you know, maybe, maybe that Watterson refused to license, uh, sure, uh, yeah. officially license Calvin out to those other, uh, to, to merch merchandise was one of the reasons he was able to step away. Cause otherwise it's probably, if they would keep making him an offer, he can't refuse <laughs> to keep that merch train running. Yeah. And I think that there's a thing too about maybe it's like Richard kind of alluded to, like, you know, you're drawing a daily strip, you're working on something, you're putting something out every day. 
Um, and last week we talked about this, how we went on a couple of sabbaticals over the course of this time. But, you know, for the most part, you're putting out something new every single day, except Saturday. But still, you're just, you're there, you're having to come up with a new idea, you're having to flesh out your um, storylines. You know, you think about someone that's like a comic book artist. Uh, these men and women will draw a comic and they'll spend time on a comic for a year, a couple of issues, a couple of a few years in a row, then probably take some time off and come back. And it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But I think when you're in someone's daily newspaper, there is a relationship you have. And I'm sure that at some point uh, when you are so attuned to just the artistic nature of it, you just get probably burnt out a little bit and be like, I've, I've done it all. I don't, I don't know. There's, uh, and it's just wild. And like, there was no bigger comic than Calvin and Hobbes when it ended. And I thought, well, this is a, this is what we're, this is what we're talking about. You know, Bill Keen started Family Circus in 1960, and now it's drawn by his son, Jeff Keen. Yeah. Uh, Which is weird because Jeff is a character yeah. in the thing, so he's actually drawing himself whenever he says something cute and stupid. But go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, like, he, let's see, Thel uh, died on May 2008 from Alzheimer's. I had thought that he was actually divorced sometime earlier regardless of that the i imagine bill who knows if bill watterson had this uh sworn kind of promise to this kid calvin that he created that he was not going to make him do stuff that was stupid just to generate another strip just to milk another month a year out of that strip like i'm not gonna let calvin do dumb things. I'm not going to make up dumb things for him to do. It's all going to be about what he needs to do. Uh, Bill Keen did not make that promise. I guess. Right. All <laughs> those kids are, you're young for 10 years. And then, and then he, he had, he had 60, he got to 60 more years out of these kids. Uh, crazy. All right. What's your first one, Richard Manfredi? All right. So I decided to go the sports route for my first one. I figured that that was a, a popular sort of option for sports. Um, for, for yes, the sports, the, all of the sports. The sports. Um, and this is kind of a two for one here. I am going with Detroit Lions superstars. Um, two of them in particular, Barry Sanders and Calvin Johnson. Barry Sanders, uh, the running back who retired in after the 1998 season uh, when he was in striking distance of Walter Payton's all time rushing record um, the season before he retired he rushed for 2,000 yards just a phenomenal talent as was Calvin Johnson the wide receiver uh, the first wide receiver to come close to 2,000 yards of receiving um, when he retired after the 2015 season he had had a, he had had a great season 88 catches 1200 yards at the peak of his game and as was Barry Sanders, and they both decided to walk away from the NFL. Why? Because they were on the Detroit Lions, which are <laughs> perennially the worst team in the NFL. I mean, they are so bad that they are known, now known in the sports world as sort of a shorthand for a terribly run franchise. 
So if you're talking about the Baltimore Orioles, you say, yeah, the Orioles have been bad for a long time. They're like the Detroit Lions of baseball. <laughs> they're sort of just, that's what they're known as. Yeah. And both Barry Sanders and Calvin Johnson said when they retired, one of the reasons was that um, they just had had enough of being on a team that couldn't win despite mm-hmm. having one of the best players in NFL history, whether it was Barry Sanders or Calvin Johnson on their team. And I'm just fascinated by this idea that just one team can be such a sinkhole that it, that it somehow deprived us of several years mm-hmm. of two of the most explosive and wonderful and fun to watch players who ever played their position. It just fascinates me that this, that wow. the team itself just being that bad mm-hmm. can really have that much of an impact and sort of just force people suck the fun out of it. Wow. Because I think we forget about the fact that these are, you know, these they're athletes. Yes. And they get paid very handsomely to, uh, to perform, but at the same time, they're humans. Right. Mm -hmm. And if they're doing something and they're out there getting their head caved in 16 games, every every season, and they know they're probably going to lose 11 of them. That just that's got to be just wearing, just got to wear on you, just wearying, just not fun after a while. And that's just you know, sports are supposed to be fun. I'm sure they went you know, when Barry Sanders or Calvin Johnson all through their lives, they were probably on the the best teams. Their teams probably won championships all through all levels of their careers, and then they get to the peak of their career, playing in the NFL, and they're on the god damn lions <laughs> well it's interesting for me finding uh somebody who's on top within a team that's on the bottom that's uh a, a, an interesting point like uh sometimes we're questioning people's motivation asking why and you you pretty much spelled it out there that they no matter what they were shackled to this losing entity so no matter how much win they could eke out you know, no matter how much individual success they could have, they would never have team success. Yeah. And just that level of frustration with that just got to be too much. I mean, with the sports one, and I don't know, Michael, do you have any sports ones on your list? I do. Okay. Well, maybe I, I won't, I won't talk about it on the off chance that it happens to be one of your picks. Competitive um, eating. Yes. Kobayashi decided <laughs> to walk away. <laughs> A terrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Winfield, what's your second one? Uh, my second choice. I'll stay in sports. I'll, I'll keep it with sports. And it is um, Michael Phelps. Oh. oh wow. Who, um, of all the people that um, I was thinking of, that I remember watching the 2016 um, Olympics uh, down in Rio de Janeiro. And I wasn't down there, but yeah, I was going to say, where I didn't listen. I didn't go to Rio, you guys. Uh, and I remember Michael Phelps from eight years before as this kid who was on the cover of um, Sports Illustrated with like these eight gold medals that he won at the Beijing Olympics. And then he kind of did another amazing feat 12 years, you know, four years later in um, the London Olympics and he won a ton of medals then. And you think, at some point, it's got to break. At some point, there's just the guy that it's just too much. It, it gives in. They end up finishing second or third in these swimming, you know, he, in these you know, swim competitions. And you, you just, 
naturally these athletes just kind of fade and sometimes they fade in a public light, especially after I think in 2012, he kind of retired at some point. He kind of gave it up and made a comeback, but he went on to become just the most decorated Olympic um, athlete of all time, winning the most number of gold medals, the most number of actual medals. And even in his last Olympics, he took home five medals, four gold and one silver. And there was a very interesting thing you said, Richard, with Barry Sanders and Calvin Johnson. They were both like 31 years old, either 30 or 31. And Michael Phelps too was like 31 when he won his last um, five medals. And it's what a strange, like just confluence of like, age is a is just that is that when you peak is that when you're just at your just over that just over the hill does everything go downhill from there do these athletes just somehow know i'm never going to be better than this i am perfected my sport i perfected everything i can do physically and now is the time i don't know and but i think just this this guy who's kind of kind of a weird dude kind of in a niche sport, but it's just like the best that has ever been at this thing. It's just wild. And I, I don't think he necessarily gave it up because um, I don't know, you know, I, I think they just quit because they know. I think, I think their body tells them sometimes and maybe with a character like um, Calvin Johnson and Barry Sanders, it's the combination of like, my physical peak is not going to be there, but also I'm all, I'm with this terrible organization. But I think with probably someone like Michael Phelps, he's like, how much more decorated can one get? I mean, you can't turn up to 11 every time. And it's just like, I, I did it. I No one's going to beat this for a long, long time. And I, I, I just find him pretty fascinating as like kind of a weird kind of guy or weird personality, kind of awkward. But man, that kid can swim. Yeah, he, he seems like uh, physically built for for uniquely built for for that yeah. sport. Uh, yeah, with I, his he, web with his webbed hands, yeah, webbed really. Hands, the, yeah. uh, I think the, 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 the gills help. Yeah. <laughs> the gills help. Mm-hmm. He's one of those. He's one of those guys. He, every once in a while, I'll, I'm going to come back to comic books. Every once in a while, um, some artist decides to kind of go off a very traditional uh, comic book aesthetic for. Uh, how they draw someone and they'll draw someone how they would in theory should appear in real life like oh. at some point they started drawing the flash with like really big thighs <laughs> and like really big legs i wonder if some of the more aquatic type characters maybe like a some you know a namor or a uh or aquaman yeah. i wonder if they started being drawn more like michael phelps yeah and if not they probably should because this guy's <laughs> perfected swimming in a line back and forth i would absolutely think that it would be a challenge to have an awareness of your freshness date your uh serve by date best by date uh, because you have to have an overwhelming amount of confidence in order to compete and it has to be blinding and single single-minded i think the focus to hit the pool at 5 a.m every day and train and train and train i just think athletes are most mostly noted for that that uh blazing amount of of self-confidence and uh 
to to be able to trust whatever that voice is, or maybe it's your entire body <laughs> telling you we're done. We're done. We can't stay fit for another four years till the next one of these. I'm surprised he just never got seduced by one of those professional swimming teams, you know, and gone pro. So yeah. or, a, or a nymph, a, nymph. a water nymph, yeah, a water nymph lured him to his uh, watery grave. No, well, that's what that's what he was training for. That's why he wore the earplugs, and he wore like you know he'd walk out and he'd have the headphones on, and he, he was like I can't can't hear it listening to DMX right now. Uh, <laughs> on these beats by Aquaman. Okay, uh, oh, what do you got, Richard, man, Friday? All right, so my second choice is the one that got me thinking about this topic, and it's the police, the band, oh, well. not the uh, law enforcement okay. organizations. Um, and I got thinking just about how huge the album Synchronicity was. I mean, they went from being a very successful band to almost without argument, the biggest rock band in the world when that album came out. I mean, it challenged Thriller for the top spot in the Billboard chart for months, you know, which was, you know, if you think about it, it's just, you know, Thriller is the gold standard for successful albums and and Synchronicity was right there. And that was it. We never got another, uh, we never got another Police album. Uh They went out, um, they did a, uh, the tour behind synchronicity and they played chase stadium and sting said that he felt that performing at chase stadium was kind of the everest and that once you play at chase stadium you've kind of done everything you can with that he felt like he had done everything he could with the police um so everyone kind of went their separate ways uh they got back together to play some amnesty international dates in 1986 and they finished their last uh, show was at Giant Stadium. And they're ending, they're playing Invisible Sun. And uh, Sting brings out Bono to sing the final verse because U2 is going to be following them up. Um, and when they got done with the song, they handed their instruments to the individually to all the members of U2. And it was sort of like this passing of the torch saying, we were the biggest band in the world. We're not going to be around anymore. Now it's your guys' turn. Oh, I'd never heard that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. They got, they actually did get back together in uh, July of 86 to try to record an album, but like nobody's heart was in it. Stuart Copeland had broken, Mm -hmm. fell off a horse and broke his collarbone. Um, if, he, if he had a like a more athletic horse horse riding body, that wouldn't have happened. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, he had a drummer's body, which is not yeah. built, as oh. we all know, is not built for horse riding. Exactly. Um, and then, yeah, everyone, you know, Sting went off to do another uh, solo album and everyone just sort of went their separate ways. But the peak of their career, you know, was Synchronicity, which was their last album. Who knows? I mean, how many bands have reached a level like that have kind of in their hearts known that they're never going to do anything that great or that successful, but continued, even if they hate each other, continued to just plow away doing albums and tours because, well, the money's there. And the police didn't do that. And I know what you're going to say, but there was a, a reunion tour. Aha. 
And I would even say their reunion tour allowed them to go out on top because it was a massive success. It was like the at the time it was the third largest, uh, third highest grossing uh, tour of all time. And fans loved it. Critics loved it. Obviously, it was a huge success. And then they just stopped after that. So there was something about the police where they they understood the value of giving the people what they want. But if you're not going to be able to do give your best to put something out or to be able to do something, we're not going to do it. And so there was never like this kind of, they never had their let it be. Mm-hmm. Right. They never had that album where no, where they recorded it because they're a band, and, but nobody wanted to be there and everyone kind of hated each other. And it was just kind of like shitty. Yeah. They never had that. And I thought you find that fascinating. If anybody listened to our previous episode, I think I said the title Abbey Road multiple times when I meant Let It Be oh, whoops. <laughs> in the previous episode. You know, that I find that really fascinating because I, I have been reading up like I, um, great podcast with uh, Miles Copeland talking about the Copeland brothers, um, Stuart, his brother, mm-hmm. and then I forget the other brother's Ian name. Copeland, right? Ian, Ian? Yeah. Ian was the one who runs IRS records or did, I guess. I got I thought Miles ran it. Well, Ian when when Mile when e when Miles was trying to get the police booked um into clubs and things like that, he went to his brother, I guess Ian, who was working as a booker in Atlanta. And, yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah. And uh said, "Hey, hey, help me book these guys into some US dates." Um, but I, I just think like without, without these three brothers, the Copeland brothers, the three brothers who were, uh, Andy Stewart and Gordon in, in the, the police, um, might not have ever even been in the place to strike so hot hard when MTV needed three blonde hunky weirdo goofballs who were combining ska and punk together into this thing nobody had seen before you know and uh i i I do think you are absolutely right i mean obviously there were a lot of fans on mtv that never became as popular as the police did you know i think of even um men at work were kind of the bargain basement police and they were so fucking popular successful yeah i was i was watching i was i was reading the the uh, number one series that uh-huh. you and i have talked about yeah now. i've been pushing on you um on stereo gum and i, I can't remember if it was who can it be now or mm-hmm. land down under is one of those two entries where it just talked about how huge business as usual was yeah i mean it actually knocked thriller out of the number or either oh, it either kept Thriller out of the number one spot for, like, I want to say for like a month, uh-huh. like Thriller was stuck at number two because it could not dislodge business as usual by fucking men at work Wow, from the number one spot. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that period of like 1983, there was a lot of, there was a lot of weird stuff happening in music mm-hmm. and the police were like this. I mean, they shouldn't have, it shouldn't have worked in terms of mainstream success to that level. Yeah. I mean, there were these kind of, like you said, good looking kind of goofy guys and they had the, had a personality, but their music was this kind of mix, like you said, of reggae and new wave and punk. I mean, 
really there's no reason why they should have succeeded where a band like i don't know xtc who yeah. came up at the same time shouldn't have but somehow the police got the you know through connections and whatever reasons they got the golden ticket mm-hmm. and they decided to walk away from it and that just that's fascinating to me yeah i i, I agree too I, I also interesting you know what uh what else were they gonna do you know um well Stuart copeland was gonna do music scores and uh mm-hmm. sting was gonna <laughs> fight kyle mclaughlin and dune you know they all had their own <laughs> other things that they were uh, excited about doing so um, what was, was sting most excited about doing doing it for hours on end yes <laughs> tantric Bonin, bonin, baby. <laughs> My weird. Okay, first of all, I saw the I saw the the uh, first synchronicity. <laughs> I saw the synchronicity tour at Kemper Arena. Uh, so far away, I'm not sure it could have been Larry Daryl and Daryl. I don't know if it was staying uh, <laughs> those. But um, uh, I remember by the time synchronicity came out. Um, mostly through my brother who was a who was a drummer and he just loved Stuart Copeland and he loves Regatta de Blanks and Yada Mandata, um, uh, Atlantos de Amor or whatever the other three albums were. Yeah. Synchronicity was the big fucking sellout. It was like Clash Combat Rock. It was like their their radio album oriented rock uh, sellout. And so even though, yeah, Every Breath You Take was like the biggest, I think that was on that album. That was like the biggest- yeah fucking mtv seller there ever was we were just permanently eye rolling at these guys who were like so cool and uh now everybody in the world knew knew about them so sellouts sellouts yeah they're selling out arenas every night yeah uh so guys we sold out uh we have made all of our catalog free to you it used to be behind a paywall um and you would need to knock that paywall, <laughs> we paywall down. That paywall it was a literal, <laughs> wa- literal wall made out of Legos. Yeah. You had to get through it. You had to get through it. And uh, no longer, it's all free out there for you to just grab. So there may be, you know, you don't do this, but some disreputable people have already kind of, uh, you know, downloaded them, burned them onto CDs, and have been selling them on street corners out in Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, that's your choice. We're like you two. We're putting it out on free on your iPhone. Um, whether you want it or not. Whether you want it or not, you can delete it immediately. Uh, but do us a solid. If you're going to monetize it or do all that stuff that we know you're going to do, uh, do us a solid of giving it a five-star rating. Um, if it's a 100-star scale, still give it five stars because that's what we deserve. And then do us another solid and let us know what episodes... Uh, you'd like us to tackle topics you'd like us to discuss you can do that on facebook twitter and instagram maybe w- people who went out on bottom went out went out when things hit the worst of them <laughs> just the worst. i went out before everything's ever got any good um that, it's like, that's, it's that's like the a, podcast it's like yeah, the podcast yeah. basically <laughs> It's whatever that whatever that football guy is in the draft every year that gets selected. Oh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Irrelevant. Mr. Irrelevant. It's the last pick. That um, there's a guy that's even less irrelevant than him. It's the person that was picked right before him. At least Mr. Irrelevant has like a catchy nickname that he can forever <laughs> have on his Wikipedia page. Whoever number, whoever pick number, you know, three hundred seventy-eight is is like nobody knows me. They'll never know me. <laughs> was that there was a thirty for thirty? Or it was like a 
10 for 10 or something on the guy who Jordan's dunking on in the poster. I forget what poster it is, but the, <laughs> the kind of pale white guy who's kind of falling over. And it's all him talking about, uh, my life is great. I don't know why people think I'm so sorry and pathetic just because I'm the guy Jordan's dunking on. Has uh, anybody said George Washington? No. He's on okay. the Mount Rushmore. Here's the dude who invented, was it Comatus? Comatus was like the Greek, the Roman emperor who um, who was made emperor and then they needed him to be emperor and he said, okay, I'll do it for a year. And then after he helped, thing, helped him out, he quit. And so George Washington was following in his footsteps. So like, here's the guy who's literally, you know, when the Revolutionary War, Okay, you know, I'm not going to be in the army anymore. Are you going to be a president? Okay, yeah, but I'm only going to do it for a couple of years and then I'm going to be done. Like, wow, what, what, what a definition of. Yeah, he definitely was the, the you know, we, there's a lot of like uh, idealized, uh, idealization of America's greatness in our past, even though it has not been so great and mm-hmm. it's been openly <laughs> racist and horrible, and even in, even in the, the times of the initial you know, quote unquote, greatness of America, throwing off the shackles of, um, you know, English rule and all that. It, it's kind of a terrible country, but he did set the tone of being like, you know what, I'm going to stop now. And yeah. it's better that I stop now. And, you know, thankfully some other people thought to themselves, you know what? Yeah. That nobody should do this forever. Yeah. Good on you. Good on you. you, just, you GW. Just get corrupt. Uh, okay, uh, Mr. Winfield, what is your third choice? Okay, my third choice. So let me set the scene. Imagine that you are in a world, um, in a world practically, um, practically worshipped as a god. You're, but you're kind of a loner. And then you meet the girl of your dreams, right? You mm-hmm. fall in love with this person. And you're whisked away. And suddenly you found like fame and fortune and the girl is there and then you're on the top of the empire state building oh. and planes are buzzing around <laughs> it's the tall it is the tallest building that you've ever seen it's the highest you love to climb by the way you love to climb i'm not talking like sylvester stallone and cliffhanger climb you love climbing this is ernest of course Gorman. of course i'm talking about king kong king kong yeah. Yeah, he, he had it all. He had fame and fortune on the Broadway stage. Yeah. He met the girl of his dreams that he was madly in love with. He would do anything for her. He'd fight Tyrannosaurus Rexes for her. He'd fight pterodactyls for her. <laughs> he would he would he was literally worshipped as a god by the people on Skull Island. They mm-hmm. uh sacrificed things to him all the time. Uh went on a fabulous sea voyage, not unlike uh Joe and Joe versus the volcano, quality film came to new york everybody wants to go to new york they have this new building and he sees this building and he's like oh my god this building is a size even bigger than my mountain back home i'm gonna climb to the top bada bing bada boom it's fallen off oh i had a pretty Mm -hmm. good life (laughs) (laughs) in kong is it his high voice do you think that she's attracted to fey fey um i wonder if he was like one of those kind of like uh great apes that um he got to New York and then he tried to put on like a New York, you know, accent. Oh yeah, hey, wait, I want to get a slice. <laughs> I'm climbing over here. Where's the F train? 
Wow. Uh, okay. I, That's a, uh, it's a very true. Like literally from the heights, from the highest heights, he is, he, wait, he half, he half done fall. And that was the I end. I don't think, how much agency did he have on his demise? It doesn't, I don't think he did. Some biplanes had their, their part in it, right? Are, are sure. we talking about somebody's self? It, and Jeff Bridges too. Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Oh, wait, that's, that's the wrong movie. Okay, you're thinking yeah. of the earlier one. My bad. Uh, that was the wrong movie and the wrong tower that he fell off of. He was on top of the, uh, the World, World Trade, Trade Center. Yeah. The yeah. World Trade Center on that one. Um, but I think, you know, I've been watching the most recent kind of King Kong Godzilla movies recently. And, you know, the word apex predators thrown around so much of these, you know, these gigantic titans that are bashing into each other and they're the greatest creatures that have ever roamed the earth. And God, that must just make you feel pretty good to get out of bed every morning and just be like, yeah, biggest, the best there is. Yeah. And he, he was the it. biggest and the best on like his, his island. He, he it kind of sucked. You, you'd have yeah. to fight for your life every day, but you were ultimately the best person. Yeah. If you saw a lion running mm. around, you could pick it up bite his head off and just throw the rest or eat the rest if you wanted to like the king of the jungle you could just eat his eat his head eat his whole body okay i mean you know king kong hey, yeah he's royalty yep he's not he prince kong no nope. no no um so yeah there was a little bit of um you know silliness in terms of him literally getting to the top and falling off but just in terms of like he was he was he, he found love to whatever, yeah. whatever he he had, and then you know he didn't get old. He didn't cut a rap album. Mm. Uh, he didn't have like a, a late night infomercial or an ill fated sponsorship or something like that. He's no not, comb, no comb over, no comb over. He's not promoting Magic Jack at one a.m. or something. There's no, there's no, there's no King Kong air fryer that he's just yeah. trying to. <laughs> he got out, uh, uh, Manfredi. All right, so my third choice is J.D. Salinger. Oh, okay. The uh, famous recluse author mm -hmm. uh, came to prominence in the late 1940s with his uh, uh, stories about the uh, class family, including A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, and kind of these stories telling, telling about the glasses, which included Franny and Zoe. And then by 1951, had put out Catcher in the Rye, which becomes a complete sensation. And, you know, he was arguably the most famous author of the 19... In, in the time of the 1950s. And in 1961, he uh, is on the cover of Time magazine. I mean, that's how... That's kind of how big he is. But even by 61, he's starting to, they, they sort of re profile him as, as this life of a recluse because he's getting insular and he's drawing in and he's not doing interviews and he's moving to uh, this small town in, in New England and kind of just building these walls around himself. And in 1965, this novella comes out, uh, Hapworth 16, 1924, uh, which was a took on the form of a letter from Seymour Glass to his parents from summer camp. And it was published and took up more, most of the June 19th, 1965 
issue of the New Yorker. And that was it. He was out. He was ghost. He was done. Now, the fascinating thing about J.D. Salinger, I think, is that he never stopped writing. He just stopped publishing. Um, He just basically decided he was going to write for himself. And he had stuff that he just wrote and kept. And that was it. You know, and I think that as as someone who wanted to be a writer at one point in my life, like like an actual writer, not a guy who writes social media copy, there I understand that sort of. I I I, I can I can understand how J.D. Salinger could get there. If you're someone who's uncomfortable with fame, but you love writing, how do you how do you reconcile that? Well, maybe you just stop publishing the stuff and just start writing for your own to get this out of your system and you never have to get reviews on whether it's terrible or horrible or great or whatever it happens to be. And you can keep just working on the same stories for the rest of your life. Um, One neighbor said that Salinger told him he had written by the seventies, 15 unpublished novels. Jeez. Oh yeah, God. and that's that's something that his kids have said. They started a couple of years ago. They came out and said, we're going to try and figure out a way to uh, get some of these works out after his death. And that at some point that everything that he wrote would be shared with the public. Um, that was in 2019. Just, hasn't come out yet. Just tweeted out. Just tweeted out 280 characters at a time. That's the new, uh, yeah, used to publish in Collier's and Harper's. Now, now it's just Twitter. Yeah. Have you guys read the new Pitcher in the Wheat? It's the new Salinger. You know, his son played Captain America. Matt what? Salinger is an actor. His son played Captain America in 1991, I think, or 1980 in the 80s. No, oh, really? in 1990. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the uh wasn't the uh Roger, not the Roger Corman. Yeah, wasn't didn't Roger not Corman the make- Rebel. Uh, maybe, maybe it Hold was. on. He was in Revenge of the Nerds, too. Yeah, yeah. Not Revenge of the Nerds, too. He was in Revenge also, of the Nerds as well. He was also yeah. in Revenge in addition, of the Nerds. Yeah. Fascinating. I didn't know that part of it. Yeah. Danny um, Burke. He was he was one of the uh, one of the horrible um, jocks. Yeah, Alpha Beta. Hmm. Uh, that's, yeah, that's uh, fascinating. Because isn't Finding Forrester or something of, kind of about loosely based about that or, or yeah it's about an, it's about a reclusive author yeah who decides to uh mentor a uh, young prodigy mm-hmm. i i think as a part of a capitalist society and a society that treats celebrities whether they're literary or or entertainment or music as uh greater than regular humans it's fascinating for us i think when an artist has a relationship solely with their art form that they're willing to exclude us from it and a good reader of literature has this audience of all the great masters and and they it seems like salinger was just trying to impress them uh he was just trying to impress shakespeare or faulkner or somebody like really anyway yeah Hemingway. oh you you don't want you don't want to impress us anymore and let us devour you uh, and chew you up and spit you out with the newspaper articles and, and things like that. Yeah, I no, I mean, uh, I mean, there was just something about having his art productized and commercialized 
mean, they made in Hollywood, they made one movie based on one of his short stories and he uh-huh. hated it. And basically, you know, said, even though he loved movies apparently and had tons of like eight millimeter and 16 millimeter reels of all these oh. uh, collection of these great movies, he never wanted his movies ever again. Or he never wanted his stories ever again to be turned into a movie. Mm. Um, can you imagine? Can you imagine what was the last movie that J.D. Salinger watched? I hope it was something it was, dumb. Was, yeah, I hope it was I, something I hope, like I hope so too. It was like it was like Scoob, Scooby Doo Two Monsters Unleashed or something. Just like like he's happened to have seen it with a grandchild and then had like you know passed away. Just <laughs> just something to it's like Surfs Up, the one with the surfing penguins, which is actually pretty good. But you know, right? I'll never be that good. Uh. uh. <laughs> Michael, what's your final choice? Uh, my final choice is um, Wesley, the Dread Pirate Roberts from oh, fun. Oh, fun. Uh, The good. Princess Bride. Uh, this, uh, this man has accomplished everything that he set his heart out to do. He went out and made his fortune. He came back and uh, found his lady love. He helped another find revenge. And then he gave it all up. He made his money. He has the woman that he wanted. He doesn't need to do anything else. He was nearly killed in the process, had 50 years of his life possibly you know, removed <laughs> from him. Maybe a portion of it was put back by the, um, by the Miracle Max, but I think that's left up to speculation. But he's a person that could have continued his life as a pirate if he had so wished, but he had a very specific goal. And I think so many of the choices that we've talked about are about that, or about achieving, achieving a goal of, of finding something that you know what your endpoint is. You set up the goal. I've done this thing, and now, now I can rest. Now I can go back to a life of happiness, a life of you know, finding something else to be fulfilled by. And I think that he is such a you know I. You kind of alluded to it. You talked about it, Richard or uh, Jeff with the George Washington, when you talk about yeah. George Washington, the idea that you can give up power, I think is really interesting. Power and influences, you know, as mm-hmm. his career as a Dread Pirate Roberts is one that he didn't necessarily want to pursue. He was hijacked and was a part of his crew and then became it once he kind of showed his medal being, uh, you know, to the previous Dread Pirate Roberts and the, the ability to pass this thing along is a, a sign of character and um as was his pursuit of um buttercup it was just mm-hmm. like this is his end game his end game is pardon me his end game is coming back to the woman that he loves and showing her that he can provide for her and yeah also kill a few RUSs along the way <laughs> i do think uh, you know uh the idea there sure there's a lot of roman like influence i think on uh the shape of our democracy but even the idea of what a citizen is was probably very uh um alluring to george washington the idea that a citizen of a great city or state or country is a good thing to be a private citizen and you and of course he had like 
an estate and uh, all this stuff and, and wealth that he had to maintain. But uh, I imagine Wesley thought that was pretty fucking cool too, to just settle down and raise a family and probably lord over a manor or something like that, whether it be humble or not. But we, we I think most people look at that and go, oh, you're nobody. It's like uh, um, Henry Hill in Goodfellas. Those regular guys, they were dead. <laughs> you know, if you're not a celebrity or a gangster or something. I just, I just love the idea of like, seeing this entire person's life struggle of coming up as a, you know, a poor stable boy, yet completely handsome and beautiful at the same time. So like, you know, yeah. don't cry for me too much. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Carrie always just this uh, unbelievably gorgeous blue eyed, yeah. uh, blonde haired man. And just, you know, Oh no, I, I'm, I'm poor, but incredibly handsome. And I found my love at 18 <laughs> and, you know, and then coming back to, at the end of the day, um, fulfilling everything that he sought out to do. And then, mm -hmm. and the, you know, falling out a window, gives it all up. And is like, well, why don't, you, why don't you do this thing that has all this great power and uh, tremendous fortune in front of you? And it's, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go actually rest for the first time in my, in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it feels like uh, old Steve Rogers handing a, and a shield over to yeah. Sam Wilson or something like yeah. that. I, I do owe this pick to uh, walking by my fridge and seeing uh, a magnet of Inigo Montoya on there. <laughs> <laughs> it says you killed my father, prepared to die. And it just like, it fell right into my head. So thank you. Thank you to uh, Emily's stepmother nice. for nice. Having, having sent us that so many years ago. I almost feel like Carrie always did it did that with the movie i'm sure he's done some fun things since uh, i think the saw i've never seen the saw movies but i think he was in those and i don't know but that was kind of uh, his... he was in stranger Thank things recently was he yeah yeah em emily and i just got through watching um three rambo movies that i'd never seen she'd never seen them either i'd never seen i i made it 40 something years i've never seen rambo or, or first blood first blood part two or rambo three have no real intention of seeing the other two but we watched them all together and um, my immediately my immediate thought was oh my god i want to watch hot shots yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's like oh i got to see a zucker brother movie and <laughs> it's and carrie always is in that so it's like oh, oh yeah, he's see yeah he's like the he plays the um kind of uh, val kilmer type uh oh. handsome handsome blonde guy in that one too yeah favorite scene um Martin Sheen, <laughs> intercutting between Martin Sheen on his uh, <laughs> Charlie Sheen yeah, yeah. part due. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I loved you in Wall Street. Um, <laughs> see each other, uh, man. Freddie, wrap it up. Rip All right, rap. so my, my rip, rip, rippity rap. My last choice is the TV show The Sopranos. Oh, nice! A show that lasted for six seasons, and I believe eighty. As, as he stalls as he's trying to look this up on wikipedia 86 episodes and it was a when it went off the air it was at a, at a critical peak at a cultural peak certainly near the top of its ratings peak this is a show that could have gone on as long as david chase wanted it to go on but he just decided i know what story i want to tell and i can get there with through with six seasons and just set up the sixth season as sort of a prolonged 
farewell to wrap up a lot of this stuff. And we all know about the ending and whether or not that mm-hmm. works or doesn't work. That's totally your one person's opinion versus another's. But I, but you know, six seasons, that's nothing. That's a very like British television way to do things. Yeah. Yeah. hell that's that's three seasons max mm-hmm. yeah the I british mean, the british are like three seasons of 18 episodes you're pushing it unless it's something like are you being served which i think went on for like 88 years or something like that yeah but, coronation street is like 50 years or something. yeah so they're either one or the other mm-hmm. but yeah the sopranos just is something that was reached this cultural zeitgeist and david chase said you know what? we're done i've told the story and it's time to wrap it up and go home. Now there is a sequel coming out or a prequel um, involving the young Tony Soprano, which uh, I mm. don't know. I don't know. I'm up in the air about that one. David Chase wrote it, so I'm kind of hopeful that it's that it's good, but I don't know. But that shouldn't take away from from the you know the idea that David Chase kind of was able to walk away from this hugely successful show just because he had told the story he wanted to tell and he kind of showed in the last season that there's no way out of this lifestyle you either wind up dead or in jail those are your options yeah or you wind up like uncle junior senile and shooting your your nephew accidentally Mm -hmm. uh but yeah basically showed there is there's no happy endings for any of these people and that was the story he wanted to tell from the beginning and he was able to get there in six seasons, and so that was enough. There was no stringing it out. There was never a, a there's another never a, a cousin Oliver. Yeah, in the Sopranos. I feel like is it Tony Junior? I feel like the son character. I, Toju. Yeah, they call him Toju. Toju. I just felt like I never even felt like he was really. You mean AJ? It was AJ. A, AJ. No, no, no. I, you're not a true fan. Everyone called him Toju. You don't remember this? Is, episode after episode every hey told you told you this told you that okay. i don't know I, i'm just making it up i just remember Sorry. thinking with it. yes and if he was a more compelling performer they would have had to go on with the next generation of the thing and i realized the whole his storyline was about how he was never going to be his dad um and then nobody should be his dad uh we we that's that's the godfather anyhow that's not um this story yeah, but yeah, and hats off to him. I think also they had already um, reinvented the idea of uh, pay television as the home mm-hmm. for good content. Like uh, I, I forget what series had done that kind of before. Was was Twin Peaks on pay? No, that was ABC. ABC. Okay, but um, it was like your your you know, Arliss. Uh, <laughs> oh God, no! Sex in the City or yeah. Larry Sanders Show. Yeah kind of like uh, that but you know i think of how many people were driven to um sign up for hbo just because of the sopranos well uh, it's, it's amazing it's it's interesting to see that kind of um you know contrasted with um game of thrones which was you know even even more successful and like it's weird to see you know everyone has criticized that final season on how it was wrapped up and i still don't understand why it was wrapped up so quickly they had mm-hmm. all the money in the world. They had all, like, the people that were just the showrunners were just like, oh, we want to move on to something else. And that, like, that's not great storytelling. That's not, that's not, like, mm-hmm. 
it could have been written a little bit longer. It feels like it could have been developed. It could have been, you know, obviously they were working off of like the kind of uh, sketch, sketchbook ideas of uh, George R. R. Martin on how he was going to finish the, the books and the books that he's never gonna, he's never going to write. He's he he cares too much about like doing prequel type stuff. The 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 detailed history of the stuff that happened, you know, five thousand years before, whatever. They're even doing the prequel shows of that that seem like I don't <laughs> I don't really care about it. Like he's right, you he's, know, he's like Tolkien. If he wrote this, if he had like basically decided to tell all the backstories before he finished Return of the King. Yeah, it's, it's very like it's, it's weird. It's very strange, but I mean, even just the idea of like they could have done whatever they wanted. They could have kept going, but then they decided to move on to other now kind of failed projects. It seems so, it's, uh, it's so strange. And I guess uh, so unsatisfying in the way that is the exact opposite of how The Sopranos was satisfying. Whether you like that last individual last episode or not, the entire series was so great. Everything was so great about it, so well thought out and so well developed, except for maybe some kind of... Um, dream sequences type stuff but even that yeah, yeah. you know it's for all forgivable you know i also have to admit that the first season of sopranos i thought oh they're ripping off analyze this a mobster talking to a therapist yeah and it had some elements of humor in it and boy after six or so episodes there was no there was no thinking about that anymore it was all off its its own universe for sure all right dudes we did it we did it we did it but we're, we're going to continue to do it we're not gonna we're, we're not going out on top we're, we're going, going out top. we'll go out aggressively in the middle <laughs> um let's go just because it was so uh unpredictably batty um king kong oh, that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> and how about the um uh nostalgia that it kind of caught me with the police and then i'd never i've heard of barry sanders but not calvin johnson so um let's go with those two and i don't know i kind of think you both agree on this um so i'm gonna go with this it's gonna be a richard heavy uh awards um, thing so of sopranos good yeah good choice good. okay Sorry, guys. should i retire now that i actually finally won a week Oh snap! Don't it answer. Was that, don't answer. Guys. That's all. So we had to give you three. <laughs> yeah, don't answer, guys. No, this ain't nothing without Richard Manfredi. And this has been the Mount Rushmore of going out on top. I'm always Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. I'm always Jeff to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> oh, you're still you. Uh, uh, still Jeff. Still Jeff. <laughs>